I talked last night to the young people about being discontent with the way God made us. And not, you know, God plops that ball of clay on the potter's wheel and he goes to work. And, and we resist that thing many times. And I've often wondered why God, and you know, I'm 65, and so if you think it's over at 16, just forget it. You know, I'm 65, and, and I speak a lot, and I wonder why God just gave me this soft, raspy voice. And, and then I met Mr. Schrader last night, and Boaz, and man, he don't need no microphone, no nothing. And if I had a voice like that, then I, then I would be proud. And so then that wouldn't work either. So maybe God gave me a, a little bit of a raspy, soft voice. A year ago, I was given an assignment in Macon, Mississippi. And I'm going to share that with you this morning. But it is my heart's cry for the conservative Anabaptist church today. It has to do with love, non-resistance, and the separation of church and state. Most of us have grown up or were taught from our Anabaptist tradition that we have, it's one of the peculiars, one of the particulars of our faith and practice where we take literally what the scripture says and we apply it to our life. And so we've made a very conscious effort as Anabaptist people to follow the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament about turning the other cheek and showing kindness to those who would hurt us. And while we're always troubled by those in our brotherhoods who leave or become succumb to the pressures of a worldly heart or material things or the loss of spiritual fervor, we seldom hear of those people who want to ditch the whole Anabaptist teaching of a literal New Testament. They're very slow to ditch love and non-resistance and run off and sign up with the military. There has been exceptions. I know of three young men in my lifetime that have enlisted who were raised in conservative Anabaptist homes. My father tells of the time during World War II in Harrisonburg, Virginia, that there was those old order boys who lived wild and careless lives spiritually, and they could not give positive testimony at the draft boards, and some were incarcerated. And one of my relatives um, went to the Philippines and was blown up and came home in a pine box. It is a bedrock core belief that we have and we've been passing it on from generations since the 1500s. And it is something that even many people who've long ditched any evidences of a current or conservative Anabaptist practice somehow hang on to. And I don't know if it's their fear of violence or of war and harm or if they really, in their parental homes and in their churches, something has stuck with them. So I ask you this morning, why is it so important that you and I know why we practice 
this teaching. And it's because we may never know when we will be called on to respond in a Christ-like way, even when our heart and emotions tell us that what we are feeling in our head and convictions are something else. I'm going to read an account to you of our son. I'm not reading it to you for you to feel sorry for me or us, but I'm going to use it to make a point. Gideon. The accident happened late in an afternoon on Thursday, and many people drove from far and wide to see the crash site and see the wreckage of the plane. On Friday afternoon, National Transport and Safety Board had all the wreckage removed from the cotton field and put in the hangar at the Bamberg County Airport, where they could reassemble the wreckage of the plane and try to determine what went wrong. NTSB does this, an investigation on all aircraft accidents, large or small. And then it started to rain. It rained a cool, steady drizzle on into the night and the next day. The weather, overcast, gray, and drizzly, totally fit my mood of sadness and loss. And just before lunch on Saturday, I got a call from National Transport and Safety Board, and they said they wanted to meet with me at the airport. I was in no mood to go out and meet the public, let alone meet with these men who I felt sure would tell me that the plane was fine. Probable cause of the crash would be pilot error. I told them I didn't think I wanted to meet with them. And the man on the other end of the phone line said, we think it will be very important that you come. We have some very conclusive findings that may help your family process this loss. I drove alone to the airport and went into the hangar. And there standing around the wreckage of Gideon's plane were four men in uniform and armed. I don't know why. The fixed-based operator was there as well, and he had done some of the inspections on the plane that my brother Don and I had owned together. The airplane lay all across the hangar floor and as close of a reconstruction as possible. Finally, one of the men began to talk, and he said that though it might, he thought it might be helpful and that I would want to know why the plane went down and that it was probably would give our hearts some rest, some peace, some closure. The cause of the crash was not pilot error, but mechanical failure. And then he proceeded to show me the findings and conclusions they had come to as a team. On most aircraft, the nuts on almost all the bolts have a castle nut and a safety wire going through them so that the nut cannot vibrate loose or come off. This particular aircraft had an extensive overhaul and some conversions for aerobatics soon before we purchased it. And the man who owned the plane did the work, signed off his own work instead of another mechanic. In short, many crucial bolts were never safetyed. And the pin that connects the elevator cable to the bottom of the control stick came out. Thus, Gideon lost his ability for forward and aft pitch and it put him in about a 30-degree dive 
with no possible way to recover. He no doubt knew that something was horribly wrong, shut off the engine and tried to land in Myron Brubaker's cotton field. The plane hit hard and the cockpit was crushed on impact. The NTSB officers showed me other flaws that were an accident waiting to happen. Again, a case where the plane was inspected every year and a certified mechanic signed off the certificate of airworthiness without pulling up the floorboards and giving a thorough inspection. And then the official from NTSB said something like this, not even Chuck Yeager or St. Peter could have landed that airplane. I thought you should know it was not your son's fault. After a few minutes to let all of this sink in, what the NTSB officer said, he asked me this question. Would you like for us to represent you in court case against the one who has been falsifying the mechanical logbooks and the certificate of airworthiness of the aircraft your son was flying? And it was at that point that it became clear to me that someone's carelessness had caused Gideon and Jerry to be killed. There was a minute, maybe five minutes, that I needed to be sure that the biblical teachings and principles of not being an aggressor in the court of law or turning the other cheek were not some wonderful sounding idea in some utopian place and time, but to forgive and follow the teachings of Jesus when it was within my grasp to seek revenge for the thoughtless actions of someone who was the cause of our son's accident and death. And I responded, no amount of money will bring my son back to life. And I'm sure that the one whose mistakes have caused Gideon's death feels terrible and guilty already. My answer is no. Are you sure, he asked again. And I thanked them for the work that they gave, for the help that they gave and the work that they had done for us. And I walked out of that hangar into the gray, foggy drizzle and I sat in my vehicle for a while to process all that had been told me by those who investigated the accident. I, I must choose to forgive just as Christ had forgiven me. And I surrendered my heart and will to God and he gave me peace. And as I share this account, my heart is stirred again. How important that our life and our actions use are a reflection of the teachings and example of Christ, even when we've been served a terrible wrong. Non-resistance is not primarily the non-participation of war or being part of the military. It is a way of life, and it has many and broad implications. First of all, it is not an Old Testament teaching as we know it. It's only found in the New Testament. And so if we do not rightly divide between the two covenants and God's plan for the New Testament church, 
We will never get this important doctrine down right, and it will be very confusing not only to us, but to all others who are watching us as we leave a trail of confusion and inconsistency. How many of you all had me for love and non-resistance? And you know my exam. There's a question on there. Where do we find the verses in the Old Testament to support the doctrine of love and non-resistance? And I have had more strange answers from Hezekiah to Jericho to Psalms. It isn't there. This is a New Testament doctrine. It comes from the teachings of Jesus. And then his, the writers of the New Testament epistles flesh it out. I had a student who was nothing but brains. She made a hundred on everything. And she wrote some bizarre answer in that thing. And I was carnal enough to just enjoy getting out my red pen and striking it wrong. <laughs> There's three basic passages of scripture. And, and I would uh, give you a heads up for those who want to go to Bible school. You can memorize these now. Now, the guy that replaced me, I don't know, maybe he don't require that you learn these verses. The first one are very familiar, Matthew 5, 38 and 48. The Sermon on the Mount where Jesus goes from an eye to an eye to returning the other cheek. I'm not going to read near all these verses or we'd be here all morning just reading scriptures. But I'm going to read Matthew 5, 18 to 48. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. Ye have heard that it has been said, that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do you not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? But ye therefore, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And then we have Paul's letter. In uh, his letters, we have several places where he talks about good interpersonal relationships and relating to those who want to harm us. An example would be Romans 12, 17 through 21. And then we have the verses in Romans 13. And this is something that has been very confusing to so many Anabaptist people in the last two to three years since covid Direction for a proper view of the two kingdoms concept of church and state relations. And you need to read those verses. I'm not going to read them to you this morning. 
There are many others as well that reinforce our position of this very important doctrine. And I can't list them all, but we'll look at a few of them. But remember when establishing a doctrine, you don't cherry pick, you don't pick and choose. You take the whole counsel of scripture, all the verses that speak to that thing to make your doctrine. And some people are so selective, as, you know, they take a part of this one or a part of that one and make some obscure teaching. That's not how you do it. Non-resistance can be so simple as how we uh, use our voice. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. About two years ago, I got a phone call from a man from Pennsylvania. And he was so dutchy, we almost needed a translator, but we, we, we worked it out. And he's an apiar, apiar, a beekeeper. And he always hauls several semi-loads of bees to Florida. And uh, he multiplies. He's not in the honey business. He's growing bees, multiplies hives to send them to California to pollinate the fruit. He starts with the almonds, and then he does all the fruits and vegetables that you eat in the grocery store. And he decided that he wanted to try the lower part of South Carolina to see if he couldn't save himself the bother of going to Florida where there was a lot of disease and pestilence there and a lot of other beekeepers. And so I said, well, yeah, sure, you can, you can come. And I was busy. I don't remember why, but he showed up and I took him around the farm where there wasn't any cattle to tip over his hives. And I said, well, you can put them here and here and here and here. And then I went back to what I was doing, and they set off their hives and went back to where they came from. Well, one morning, I get this snarky text from the neighbor lady. And uh, it said this, the text from Mrs. Hawkins. I am not sure how to word this. My husband is concerned about the placement of your bees. It is an area that we gladly appreciate because we have a few apple trees. What she don't know is those apples will never grow, but anyway. Across the fence from, our hive, from the hives. Our main concern is that it is less than 50, seat, 50 feet from our front porch. And I'm not sure if you're sending a message to us or not. You have such a vast area amount of property and acreage, and we don't know why you would want to put them so close to our porch. Would it be possible to place them further down the fence row? And we know that once the colonies have been established, it is more difficult to move them. And we were just wondering, since they were freshly placed, if you could go a little bit further from our house, Jeff and Darlene Hawkins. And boy, my heart sank. Those people just moved there from Charleston. They were rich. And, and uh, they probably already had them a lawyer. And, oh, man. So I text back. I am so sorry. The only message that we would ever want to send to you is one of love and goodwill. There is a commercial beekeeper from Pennsylvania that has hundreds of hives overwintering here. He is trying South Carolina instead of going all the way to Florida. And we pretty much gave him access to the whole farm that cattle wouldn't get into his hives. 
and he has many hives at other places on our farm, but I was not aware or even thought that he would set some by you. I will contact him to see when he's coming back or if he would let me move them. But I will be on it first thing this morning. I am under the impression that all bees go back to Pennsylvania for the summer, but perhaps that is not soon enough. Again, we hope that you are sure that we would never intentionally do something that would or could be interpreted as hostile or not in Christ's love toward you all or any neighbors. Again, I am so sorry. It wasn't long. That lady came over to the dairy and she was hugging our necks and it was embarrassing. <laughs> A soft answer turneth away wrath. We're good friends now. And um, we worked it out. Non-resistance can be so simple as how you relate to your animals. Proverbs 12, 10. I have a very low tolerance for people who want to beat my cows. They're my ATM machines. Have you ever seen somebody go up to the bank and... Go to the ATM machine and whack it and kick it, break its tail. And them's my cows, you know. Proverbs 12, 10. A righteous man cares for the needs of his animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. I have an acquaintance that told me about his father. His father milked in an old flat barn, old stanchion barn up north and he said one morning he heard his dad talking to one of the cows. He was very frustrated. He was a, a minister in a conservative conference. And he said this, my father said this, I cannot kick thee nor can I beat thee, but I can sell thee to my Methodist neighbor who will stab thee with a pitchfork. And as we heard it before, each generation must make these biblical principles their own because the man who would not stab his own cow with a pitchfork has a grandson in the National Guard. And I, I know that if he was aware, he'd flip in his grave. But it's not granddad's fault. There was a disconnect in the next generation. Non-resistance is not the same as pacifism. Some church use that term interchangeably and also the government or other official institutions will often refer to the traditional peace churches, the Mennonite, the Brethren, German Baptist, Pentecostal, Quakers, Nazarene, Apostolic, and some other uh, peace-loving churches as either non-violence or pacifists. But I want to tell you this morning that pacifism is not the same as non-resistance. Pacifism fails to distinguish between the legitimate functions and methods of the state or federal government and those of the church and individual Christians. Pacifism has this utopian idea that if everybody had enough money and everybody um, had a nice place to live uh, that we would all just be happy and be kind to each other and uh, we could settle our differences non-violently and it's not the way it is. It's humanistic thinking. And where each thing of violence or, or hurt 
becomes a personal judgment. And so I may decide that there needs to be retaliation, but you may decide that there shouldn't be. And so that is not the way the biblical teachings of Christ work. It is consistent, consistent all the way through. The church has always taught that man's fallen nature needs to be controlled. It needs to repent and be regenerated. A pacifist opposes war and the use of force, but is not motivated by Christ or the biblical teachings of loving your enemies. Maybe this is how you can remember the difference between a pacifist and someone who's non-resistant. A pacifist still has a fist. He will take you to court. He will sue you at law. He will shoot your chickens or whatever. He won't shoot them. He'll just catch them and sell them. Nonviolent, you know. He is not acting out the principles of Christ. And if he has a grievance with you, he'll do it. He just don't like to get all bloody doing it. That's pretty simple. A pacifist don't have a fist. Isn't that what I told you? Okay, just checking. Um, those of you who had my class, don't answer this question. How many of y'all remember Cassius Clay? Okay, all of you are gray-haired or bald or both. Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay was a pacifist. How many of y'all have ever heard of Muhammad Ali? Same guy. You see, back when Cassius Clay was Baptist, he, he went by Cassius Clay. That was the name his mama gave him. But when he converted to Islam, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. And in 1966, he was drafted to serve in the U.S. military in Vietnam. He refused to enlist and claimed to be a pacifist. You know, here's a guy, you know what he did for a living. What was it, David? It was a fighter. He was probably one of the, the meanest, strongest boxers the world has ever known. He'd knock the stuffings out of you, but he was a pacifist. <laughs> he refused to enlist, and he is remembered as saying this, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong, and shoot them for what? They ain't never called me the N-word. You see, a lot of the white folks in his Baptist communities would call him the N-word, but what did he owe these Vietnamese? He ain't never done wrong. Anything. So he sort of is right. He didn't have any legitimate reason to go over them and blow them up. An appeal was made. He was sentenced to five years in prison and five, fined $10,000. And he was stripped of his passport and denied a boxing license. But he never really was incarcerated. So here's a man that had no problem whatsoever of just knocking the socks off of you with his, uh, literally, or with his bitter tongue and cruel language, but he was a pacifist. 
On April 30, 1975, the Vietnam War ended and the requirement for 18-year-old American males to register with the draft board ended as well. Most of you all do not remember that. And so anybody that is older than Nathan and I and Mark were called up, drafted, had to enlist. And, and so if you were born in 1956, that was the last year of the draft, of the mandatory draft. It's been a long time, almost 50 years. It's easy to think that it's always been that way, that it will probably always be that way. In Acts chapter 27, verse 13, and a gentle, soft south wind began to blow, and they thought that they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore to Crete. But a very long, before very long, a wind of hurricane force called a northeaster swept down on the island and the ship was caught in the storm and could not head into the wind so we gave way and were driven along as we passed the lee of a small island called Caudia where we hardly were able to make the lifeboat secure. I read you that verse to set the setting of where we are today. A storm is brewing as well in America. Canada and Europe too. And it troubles me. Harsh and strong opinions expressed about our government leaders and those whose opinions we or they may disagree with. Over and over Jesus taught us about his kingdom and the kingdom of God and that our citizenship is in heaven. That's from Romans 13. And we see God's plan for the separation of church and state. When John the Baptist came along into the world scene, his message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. And when Jesus' ministry began, the message was exactly the same. Matthew 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so throughout his time on earth, Jesus preached and taught about his kingdom so that what does it really mean to be part or live in community in the kingdom of God? And how do we flesh that out? Throughout the duration of Christ's ministry on earth and then in his disciples' teaching afterwards, the kingdom of God was the central theme of the New Testament. And here are some things that it teaches us about the kingdom of God. It uses people to make it grow. Fishers of men, Mark 1, 14. It supersedes the law and the prophets, Mark 16. It was a current reality. It was happening right now. It wasn't some utopian time out in the future. The kingdom of heaven was right now, kingdom of God. It exalts the humble and pulls down the proud. I asked you all this question the other night. Where is the real estate of the kingdom of God? It's in our hearts. In our hearts. It's not in Palestine or Israel anymore. In the new covenant, the real estate of the kingdom of God lives within you and I, those of us who have repented and called upon the name of Jesus. 
It is not of this world. It is not conquered or enlarged by force. Its policies never change. Hebrews 13.8 All of its citizens are equally important. Galatians 3.28 And it is made up from people of every corner of the planet earth regardless of their nationality or ethnicity. Revelation 7.9 So does this sound like your and my America? That ain't the way it is down in South Carolina. We still got Confederate flags and all kinds of nastiness. But there's answers that we can have to these questions. What it really boils down to is in Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. There is ample supply. And how do we apply this promise to where we're at night, at today? I want to suggest that when the kingdom of God is growing and expanding and thriving, we should be excited. The thrill that we get from that is far bigger than who wins a ball game, who wins an election, where we are going on our next vacation, or blowing up furry and feathered birds and animals, or you know what turns your crank, and perhaps it's not wrong in itself, but most of it has absolutely no eternal value. How do we practically pursue the war welfare of the kingdom of God and how do we passionately advance it? All of us have a thousand daily choices. How do you spend your time, your energy, or what do you do with your quota of worries? Or how do you choose your heroes? And what gives you a thrill or what throws you into a sour mood? You seek first the kingdom of God when you choose to bless others rather than indulging yourself in things that make us think, look or feel good. My next point is this. If you are a citizen of the United States, what are some things that good Americans should do? Perhaps you should think about becoming involved in some of the following things. Maybe you would want to wear red, white, and blue on the 4th of July. Or if you're Canadian, like Grace and others, uh, you'd wear a maple leaf wrapped around you, you know, on July 1st. Or maybe for your family devotions or in your church on the Sunday morning of July the 4th, you'll sing the Star Spangled Banner. Or you would recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, especially when in public assembly. Do you know, young lady here, do you know what the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag is? Uh-huh, see? We used to have to go to school and you'd have to cross your heart and hope to die or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, us Mennonite children knew we weren't supposed to do this. We didn't know why, but, you know, we had this paralysis and... And our arms could get them bat up to our belts because we knew the teacher was looking and, or maybe the students would scorn us. And Man, we was in a quandary. Ask your parents about, but they may not know either. You've got to be old duffer to know about Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. But anyway, well, 
Do you donate a dollar for troops at the checkout counter? We're, we're talking about things that make you a good American. Do you go to political rallies of your favorite candidates and party affiliation? Do you get your picture taken with your favorite political candidates? You get all narrow-minded and bent out of shape and forward toxic and undocumented nonsense from social media and YouTube to people who don't agree with your political views? Do you vote for who you think will be the best leaders, especially those who say that they are Christian and or Republican? 2 Timothy 2.4 No one who is engaged or entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And if you go to the U.S. Army or the Navy or the Marines, they're not going to let you bring a lot of personal stuff along. It's a distraction. You only bring along the stuff they give you. The same for the Christian life. All this baggage of being part of the earthly kingdom when we're called to be part of the kingdom of God. It just drags us down. Pursuing the kingdom of God is warfare. It's spiritual warfare. And the more unentangled, the more unencumbered, etc., that we can be from all the baggage of the other kingdom, the better soldiers we can be for the kingdom of God. Politics are often very divisive and make for strange bedfellows. Sometimes pitting families or marriage partners against each other. I read in the paper one day, this lady wrote in to an advice columnist and she said this. How many of y'all remember Barry Goldwater? He was the first President Trump. He was mouthy and ill-mannered and rude. And um, he was from Arizona. And this lady wrote this, he burns the hairs out of his nose with a match and he thinks that I'm the one who's crazy because I voted for Goldwater. And so here's a husband and wife getting all burned off at each other over a political thing. Save your breath for things that matter if you need to have a, a disagreeing discussion with your spouse. Some of y'all know uh, Daniel Miller, who lives in Jordan and works for CAM, and he uh, gave me permission to share his testimony. And this is from Daniel Miller. For as long as I can remember, I liked politics. My interests were kind of unique, and so while a lot of boys my age were playing basketball or discussing tractors, I would pore over the encyclopedias and memorize the name of presidents. The only news sources we had back in West Virginia were the newspaper and U.S. News and World Report, but I devoured them. And by the 1988 election at 13, I was mesmerized by the political process. I had chosen a candidate that I wanted to win the Republican nomination, Jack Kemp. Y'all remember him? Secretary of Housing. Uh, he was a professional football player and such a devout Christian. I don't know what he did about all his Sunday stuff and his uh, uh, cheerleaders, you know, that don't want to close or barely there, you know. But he was a Christian anyway. But anyway, Jack Kemp dropped out of the race and I cried. 
As the years went on, I continued to follow politics. Always had a favorite candidate. Always a diehard Republican. And in the year 2000 election, very frustrated when I thought that Al Gore was trying to steal the presidential election from George Bush. But a number of things happened in the years that followed and that one of them was that I started to teach in the public school and I ran into people who had a very different political view than my own. Seemingly nice people who were Democrats of all things. And I was so taken up by politics that sometimes I couldn't resist expressing my views. And a time or so, and rightly so, a fellow teacher questioned me. So you don't vote? But yet you have plenty of ideas about who should be in office. How does that work? It made me think, unquote. Defending American foreign policy is counterproductive as we relate to people of other nationalities. Fairly or unfairly, many Muslims and people from Middle Eastern descent feel like that the United States is biased against them. And so we have all of this conflict in the Middle East. It's been going on since Ishmael and Isaac, and it continues to happen today, and our country has taken sides. And a lot of evangelical Christians have too. And so it, it brings up things like the U.S.-based uh, invasion of, re, of Iraq where they took out Saddam Hussein. And that war was still largely unpopular there. And it turned a relatively stable state, even though there was a dictator, into a field of blood that's lasted ever since. And most recently, the chaos and death and destruction in Afghanistan. You know, the Americans went over there and they were going to fix all the problems. And, you know, just a few months ago, they pulled the plug and the country is in worse shape than it was. And Afghanistans don't like Americans. And then today, we have the Ukraine and Russia. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in the Ukraine and brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia. And so are you going to pick a side? We must identify with those brothers in Christ. Not with Putin or Zelensky. Or... Do you get my point? It is also very tied to what other nations view in us. In South and Central America, we find tremendous hostility and animosity towards Americans and what they consider unfair immigration policy and drug trade. And uh, all those Hispanic people want is just to have what you and I want and the opportunity to work and feed their families, and yet they feel unfairly judged. In Europe, there's this feeling that the U.S. is a bully and does whatever it wants without consulting others. I heard an Anabaptist man from a conservative church recently speaking so eloquently about building the wall down there between Texas and Mexico. And I just finally got sick of it. And I says, and so where did your people come from? Uh, Germany. And so what if they'd have built the wall there 
along the ocean wouldn't let your ship come in. Well, that was different. It ain't different. Everybody just wants to live in peace and have supper with their children and go to work. But yet, we think since we got here first that somehow we can shut the door. I don't have the answer to immigration problems. That's not my job. We are citizens of another kingdom. This, the point is not whether these assumptions about Americans is true or not. The point is that it's such a blessing not to have to defend the U.S. government policies in light of these accusations. I am not involved. I am not part of the kingdom of this world. And we can, we can stay neutral to some extent, to a large extent of these things. My citizenship is the kingdom of God, not in the U.S. and Canada, and that is by far the most important citizenship that I have. We should be much more concerned about how our fellow members of the kingdom of God are affected than we should be concerned about ourselves and the decision of our government makes for us. You know, the, the Americans are very quick to go to the Middle East and take people out that would interfere with the flow of oil. And so Thursday, Friday afternoon, I went, Friday noon, I went to pick up Grace down in the, um, Raleigh. And I stopped at Sheets and gas was 359. That evening when I came back, it was 369. And when I came by the uh, yesterday, it was 379. 20 cents in about 24 hours. But you know, the Germans have been paying over $7 20 years ago. And so we have this cheap energy policy, and we'll do anything. We'll blow them up, take them out if they interfere with so we have fuel for our SUVs and our toys. And Be careful. Political decisions that are advantageous for Americans can have horrible implications for Christians in the other parts of the world. Uh, Brother Martin, where are you? There. You mentioned about sanctions against Russia. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea until we think that our brethren in Russia don't have any gas. They don't even have groceries. It's not our fight. Stay out of it. Okay. Y'all know about the moral majority. I need to quit but I'm not doing. In the 1970s, there was the moral majority. It started up here in Lynchburg, Jerry Falwell and some of his cronies, and they were going to fill Washington full of Christians. And they worked hard at it, and President Reagan was elected, and, and then some Bushes were elected. And in some churches, there with the flags, they had a picture of Jesus and a picture of President Reagan right up there in the front. But you know, eventually the tables turned and um, President Clinton was elected and he undid, in a few strokes of the pen, 
everything that these people spent millions of dollars doing. And so uh, gays in the military came back and all these uh, no prayer in schools, all these things that they thought they were making headway was undone in a simple stroke. And then Cal Thomas, who was part of that movement, is a conservative commentator and he writes good stuff. He, he, looking back, he says this, the tragedy was not the failure to succeed, but the waste of spiritual energy that could have been better spent on strategies and methods more likely to succeed than the quest for political power. The church grows from the grassroots one friendship at a time, not from Washington. Don't do that. There is something wrong with the love affair that conservative Anabaptists have towards President Trump, former President Trump. 1 Timothy 2.1 I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It has been my lot... <clears throat> to serve as evangelist in many Mennonite communities in recent years. And I'm shocked, almost taken back at the very vocal and loyal and bold statements in support of one who does not model or even attempt to follow God's standard for holiness. Someone who treats women very poorly, uses them as objects for his own pleasure, and lives in open adultery. Someone who does not show kindness and respect to those who may have a different opinion than himself. If your children acted like he does, you would paddle them and ask them to apologize, ask forgiveness, and make restitution. America first is not the way of the meek and lowly Jesus. And then it occurred to me one day. You know, his red hats with that campaign slogan on it says, Make America Great Again. I was up in northern Indiana for meetings, and this man came by, talked to me after, and we're going to be all right. You know, President Trump's in, in power, and, and we're going to be all right. And, and he's awesome. Just that kind of nonsense talking. And the more he talked, and I started to figure out, this man believes that not only is President Trump going to make America again, great again, He's going to make us Anabaptists rich again. That's why they liked that man. He was going to make us rich. It's not biblical. Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. The principle is so simple, but yet it's so seldom implemented. Meekness, or not having to defend yourself or your ideas or your agenda, your rights, it brings rest. That longing to have a reprieve from all that's wrong in our broken world and all that's, that's what humanity is longing for. My friend, there are a reason why the scriptures warn us about having two masters, about divided loyalties and becoming involved in politics will surely compromise
our ability to remain neutral and dedicate ourselves to working for and building up the kingdom of God. And when we truly understand God's kingdom and our place in it, political fervor and nationalism needs to go. The kingdom of God offers rest as an alternative to the rage and violence of our world. There's many voices calling us every day, and I, I want to warn you. You know these things. We've got these conservative pundits, you know, these talk show hosts, bloggers, and these guys who spend their time ripping apart liberal politicians and bashing everyone who don't agree with them. You had the late Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Sarah Palin. I want to tell you, these people do not represent us or the gospel that Jesus taught. Then on the other side, we have liberal voices that say, get involved in the protests and the social activism. Do what feels good, just, just don't hurt anybody. Or just trust us to make your decisions for you. You are not wise enough or educated enough to know how to make good choices or spend the money that your family earned. Now... <clears throat> Before you paint me as a bleeding heart liberal Democrat, I am not a thrilled about Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris. That's not my job. That's who's our president. We need to respect them. Stay out of politics. And then we have evangelical Christians who tell us, the answer to our problems is to elect good men and women. If we would just get the right leaders who could appoint the right Supreme Court justices, make the right laws, everything would be okay. But okay for who? Okay for us or okay for the worldwide kingdom of God? Invariably, when we have to pick between two political options, it is often picking between two very bad choices. My generation was asked to go to Vietnam, another generation to Korea, my parents' generation to Europe and World War II. I can think of three men, Paul Good, Daniel Brubaker, and Sanford Blosser, men that I remember and knew and was a peer and friend of their children at school who all went to CPS camps and left their wives at home. I know another man who went to Germany for three years and never saw his girlfriend one time during that whole time of service. This generation is asked to wear a mask in public, and it's become a strong political statement or an identity with a harsh, independent, what is good for me movement, and it is very troubling to me. This is not the kind of trees that you want to be planting for the spiritual shade and protection of the next generation. Consistency, consistency, consistency. Abraham did not get his 15 to 20 year old son up on the altar to lay there real still by live, living a life of inconsistency and sending his boy confusing signals about life goals and devotion to the will and call of God in his life. Your children will know what really is important in your priorities and the thing that you put first 
and how you both start and end your day over the, you know, over our way, down our way, whatever. There is this saying that you can tell if you've been spending so much time in a deer stand that you have moss growing on the north side of your pants legs. Well, there's a place for that, but keep things in priority. Your priorities need to be kingdom first and earthly second. Do you have equal fervor to be at church as you do to finish a job or blow up furry animals? Do you expect your children to be more devout and dedicated to building the kingdom of God and the work of the church than what they see in you? I have an idea that the government and draft boards will know your priorities as well. When I was a boy, we was eating lunch one day and there was, we kept boarded a man from West Virginia who was draft age. And this was early in the Vietnam conflict. And there was a knock at our door and dad went to the door and there was a man there and he opened his jacket and there was a badge that said FBI. And he said, uh, does Paul Champ live here? Does he work for you? And my dad said, yeah, he, he does. And he says, what kind of a guy is he? Does he drink, carouse, does he drive like a, a moron or whatever? And my dad was able to give this young man a glowing testimony because he came from West Virginia where there wasn't a lot of Anabaptists. The draft boards weren't used to just rubber stamping all these people that came through and said they were COs. You know, now we have the internet and there's very little you can hide. If you've had a scrape with the law or anybody else, uh, the, the, I've been to Washington to, uh, up there to some of those meetings with selective service. You better live circumspectly. How are you raising your son? You're raising cotton and corn, you say, as fine as the earth will grow. You're raising cattle and hogs and poultry that win wherever they go. You're raising wheat that is hard to beat, and I know that you're counting the mun, but tell me this, O oh man of the soil, how are you raising your son? Do you take the time to talk to him of things that he ought to know? Do you show him the good and the bad of life and teach him the way he should go? Does he trust you as a son should do? Do you make him your friend or your slave? Will he stand out one day from his fellow men, honest, pure, and brave? Oh, cotton and peanuts, wheat and corn are things that are well to grow, and cattle and chickens in a bank account can be good for a man, I know. But the ribbon you take and the money you make will bring but a mite of joy. If you get to the top of the hill one day and find that you've made a scrub of your boy. I want to read one more thing in closing. <clears throat> From Philip Yancey. Grace is irrational, unfair, unjust, it only makes sense if I believe in another world government by a merciful God who always offers another chance. When the world sees grace in action, it falls silent. 
Nelson Mandela taught the world a lesson in grace when after emerging from prison after being locked up for 27 years and being elected president of South Africa, he asked his jailer to join him on the inaugural platform. He then appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to head an official government panel with a daunting name, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mandela sought to diffuse the natural pattern of revenge that he had seen in so many countries where one oppressed race or tribe took control from another. For the next two and a half years, South Africans listened to reports of atrocities coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation hearings. The rules were simple. If a white policeman or any other officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt, he could not be tried and punished for that crime. Hardliners grumbled about the obvious injustice of letting criminals go free, but Mandela insisted that the country needed healing even more than it needed justice. At one hearing, a policeman named Vandebroek recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body, turning it on the fire like a piece of barbecue meat in order to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, Vandebroek returned to the same house and seized the boy's father. The wife was forced to watch as policemen bound her husband on a woodpile, poured gasoline over his body, and ignited it. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vondybrook, the judge asked. She said that she wanted Vondybrook to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so that she could give him a proper, decent burial. His head down, the policeman nodded agreement. And then she added a further request. Mr. Vondybrook, he took all my family from me, and I still have a whole lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come down to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vondybrook to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgave him too. And I would like to embrace him so that he knows my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously summoned, the courtroom began singing Amazing Grace. And as the elderly woman made her way from the witness stand, <clears throat> Mr. Vondybrook did not hear the hymn. He had fainted, overwhelmed. <clears throat> 